What's up, everyone? Matt here. Welcome to War Machine, a podcast for theological nomads. I recently spoke with Luke Grote, who completed a PhD from Drew University not too long ago, and we spent some time talking about his dissertation, which is called The Self That Therefore I Am Not, Jacques Lacan, Zen Buddhism, and the Practice of Subjectivity. We were also joined by our friend Leif McClellan, who's a chaplain out in Minnesota these days. I think I mentioned this in the conversation, but the three of us were were part of a a local pub theology group here in New Jersey a few years back, and uh, yeah, have kept in touch since. So it was great to see those guys and and talk about, uh, I guess, the fulfillment of what Luke was doing research for during that time. We now have a Patreon, so if you'd like to support the show in that way, it's certainly appreciated. You'll find the link to that in the show notes. We're at warmachinepodcast.com. And here is Luke Grote. Peace. Luke Grote. I recently completed a PhD at Drew Theological School. I studied under uh, people like Catherine Keller, Stephen Moore, Chris Bozel, and Hyodong Lee. I have studied undergraduate at Davidson College, always known as a fine liberal arts college from the South, but now more known as the alma mater of Stephen Curry. Well, actually, he just recently made that his alma mater because he didn't he left for the MBA for his senior year. So he went back and got his degree pretty recently. So uh, anyway, I started my seminary career at Fuller Theological Seminary, which is probably, I would argue, like the most respected evangelical seminary out there because they're not the kind of evangelicals who cloister themselves off from secular thinking. Yeah, in as much as evangelicals are respectable, they're the creme de la creme. Yeah. But I transferred to Drew Theological School in New Jersey for the rest of my master's in divinity. Finish up there. <laughs> uh, I'm laughing at Leif's comment here, creme de la shit. <laughs> oh, we're going we're gonna to get to Leif in a minute. So anyway, um, when I was at Fuller, I was introduced, actually at Davidson, I was introduced to post-structuralism a little bit in an English class. I remember my English professor telling us postmodernism is basically this notion that there's a self is is no good. <laughs> basically, a lot of creative writing classes, they'll have you sit down and say, express yourself. And he's like, but what are you expressing? I find myself saying things that my father said to me. And it's not like I'm just con- consciously choosing to imitate him. They just kind of come through me. And it's like, I'm in here and I'm a professor, I'm somewhere else, I'm doing something else, and I'm not necessarily the same subject. We kind of move through these different spheres, maybe what uh, Bourdieu would call fields of power. And we assume subject, what Michel Foucault would call subject positions in these different realms. And the sense that there's a perduring essential self is uh, perhaps not that tenable. 
So that was my introduction to post-structuralism at Davidson. And then I studied under uh, Barry Taylor at Fuller. Uh, he was the most le the only real leftist that I studied under at Fuller. Is he the uh, the ex ACDC roadie? Yes. Yeah, yeah, that guy's pretty cool. You know about him? Yeah, I've met him. He taught a course, uh, postmodern theology, film, and youth culture, and he had us read Derrida. When I read Derrida and Foucault as an undergraduate, when this professor, English professor assigned it, I was like, I'd never seen anything like it. I couldn't understand any of it. I was like, what the hell is this stuff? Yeah. Then I read Derrida at Fuller, and I could generally get what he was saying. Just like, okay, these words, they don't really have stable meanings. I get this. I get this. I couldn't completely get it, but I could figure it out more than I did at Fuller. All right, at Drew, I took a course with Stephen Moore on the Gospel of Mark, but it wasn't really on the Gospel of Mark. It was on postmodern forms of interpreting Mark. And this is when I really got into post-structuralism and started reading Derrida and Foucault especially heavily. So post-structuralism has been an important influence. Obviously, that comes through in my work. But also the Christian notion of becoming a different kind of subject. You know, in, in Christian terms, it's regeneration. So I, I'm trying to marry this notion of becoming a different kind of subject with the constructedness of the subject. And not just the constructedness, but also the sense that we are informed and inhabited by a history. And that the structures that many progressives would call, my problem with progressivism is the tendency to treat e evil as fundamentally somewhere else. So what I'm trying to say is that the structures of evil deeply inhabit our persons. So the notion of resisting injustice and oppression and becoming a radically different kind of person need to be conjoined. Not only bringing Christianity and Zen Buddhism and post-structuralist thought together in an interesting way, I'm definitely interested in how those kind of came together and intersected, and you've already spoken to that a little bit, but also I'm curious about the way that your own subjectivity has been formed and perhaps why you were drawn to uh, this uh, confluence of, of topics or however you want to put that. Basically, I find psychoanalysis somewhat neglected. I find Freud's discovery of the unconscious to be indispensable. And uh, Lacan's insight that the forms of culture inhabit the unconscious to also be indispensable. And that is, I don't even know if that's Lacan's insight because that's something that you find in other uh, in structuralists. Uh, like Levi-Strauss, or in different forms of cultural anthropology and sociology. So uh, I, I'm deeply influenced by Foucault. Foucault, he deconstructs the subject, but without a lot of specific attention to the subject itself. Whereas in psychoanalysis, you get a deep investigation of the mechanisms of the subject. And I, how does this intersect with my person? Well, I've I've always been very introverted and introspective. And so psychoanalysis, I found fascinating. You know, I found Christian spirituality 
in many ways, departing from the example of Jesus to be too moralistic. And part of my understanding of the subject is that there's a lot of stuff in us which far exceeds our moral agency, but that we can exercise our agency in a certain way so that we don't have to be as determined by this stuff as we have been. So it's kind of paradoxical. I think in the Christian notion of forgiveness, there is this recognition and Jesus saying, forgive them for they know not what they do. You have this recognition, but always throughout history, you have this accompanied by a moralism, which doesn't mesh well with it. I'm not saying that a certain moral character is not an end goal, but in light of what we've learned, not just from psychoanalysis, but from all kinds of disciplines, how deeply conditioned we are. But what I'm also trying to say using Zen is that we don't have to be as subject to this conditioning as we've been conditioned to be. There's a kind of opening that in the West has been neglected, and it's a similar opening in Hinduism and Buddhism. And it's this dimension of consciousness. I mean, we think of consciousness as consciousness of. I'm consciousness of something. I think about something. I see something. But this is consciousness uh, after it has fallen into identification. There's a dimension of consciousness that has not fallen into identification. And this is what Hinduism and Buddhism tap into. Yeah, it's more identification with the sort of aperture that we associate with consciousness so that through Zen or as I take it, there's a kind of loosening of one's self from the symbolic order. Is that fair? Yes. Okay. Definitely. Cool. That's a good start. And also I should say Leif is here. Leif, say hi. Hello. I'm Leif. Leif. (laughs) What's your last name? Is it McKellen? McClellan. McClellan. Yes. Would you, uh, would you introduce yourself as well? Sure. I guess I'll introduce myself by way of how I know Luke. Um, I was a Master's of Divinity student at Drew when Luke was doing his PhD work there. And Luke invited me to go to Brew Theology, which I think was the first trial Brew Theology at in New Jersey, and started going regularly. And we've had a lot of discussions about theology. And after I graduated about uh, or graduated from Drew, um, in 2019, I moved back to my home state of Minnesota, and I am working as a chaplain um, for a senior living community there. Religiously, I'm Lutheran, but also very interested in how kind of apophatic mysticism um, informs my own spirituality. And I also find that uh, sometimes, like Luke said, you know, certain strains of Christianity can neglect the ways that we are formed our subjectivity is deeply formed by evil forces um you know there's the, the constant paradox in the luther tradition of being simultaneous sinner and saint and constantly have that before my eyes so mm. nice I quoted that in in the conclusion that you didn't read i quoted that <laughs> yeah that's funny all every Excellent. all of you all of your commentary so far has to do with the grand finale that you did not read i've i've had enough discussions with luke that i think we no, I, I know that. Yeah, no, you that was actually one of my main yeah. critiques of Zen. You guys are definitely interpenetrated for sure. Always. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I should I should say that yeah, the three of us met originally uh, through the Brew Theology thing in New Jersey. R.I.P. I ch- I don't know if you noticed. I I got it going again recently. 
Oh, it was it, did it stop? Oh, it was. I didn't know it stopped. Oh, it did. Yeah. Um, I would say about ten months into COVID. Okay. Uh, it it kind of ran out of energy, ran out of steam. As most things did. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, I think the fact that it went that long in an online space is, you know, probably a testament to the energy and interest that we had generated in real space. But anyway, um, yeah, I recently got it going again. We met like four times. A few old, like old characters came, some new people. And then I realized this is too much work. And <laughs> I don't really like where some of these conversations are going. I just decided I have better things to do. But yeah. I do. I do miss those days. Those are those are fun. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so we've kind of glossed what the uh, project is about in a general sense. I'm curious about the title of this uh, this dissertation, the whole shebang. It's it's a little bit unusual. What you? So that's not the title. That's just what I saved it as. (laughs) Because I saved all. I saved it in parts. So it's so not then called. When the I whole put shebang. everything together, I called it the whole shebang. It's but I was like, I kind of like it's kind of artistic, you know. <laughs> the title is the self that therefore I am not. Jacques Lacan, Zen Buddhism, and the practice of subjectivity. I mean, that's fine too. <laughs> I suppose we don't have to really get into that. That's that's pretty descriptive. I have a question. How, how did the process of writing this dissertation? influence your own or own relation to your subjectivity honestly there are two answers to that i think it ultimately it made me more committed recently i've been practicing meditation rigorously but while i was doing it i honestly i became somewhat hypocritical and that i became a lot more committed to the intellectual endeavor of writing the dissertation than to the spiritual practice it's dangerous to take a Western academic approach to a topic like this. I was going to ask you about that because there is a sort of latent performative contradiction in just the construction of, of a text like this, right? Given, given what you're actually pointing towards. Yeah. What I'm trying to do is say that the Western academic endeavor, I mean, we keep on believing that thinking better thoughts is the primary answer. And I'm trying to say that that's not the primary answer. Look at what happens in the academy. These big thinkers trend. They trend for a few years. And then we ditch them for the next trending, you know, theorists, thinking that we're gradually making progress. But if you look at Foucault, one of the things that Foucault tried to disabuse us of was this notion that we're gradually making intellectual progress. And yet in the academy, there's so much focus on the trending theorists that implicitly there's belief, okay, if we're focusing on what's recent and what's radical, there's an implicit belief that we're gradually making intellectual progress. Certainly, in certain respects, progress is made. But when you make progress in certain ways, it's like Foucault said once that when there's a transition, an intellectual transition, what happens is there's a certain opening, but there's a certain closing at the same time. I think he's drawing on Heidegger's notion of truth as an uncovering. And there's an uncovering, but there's a closure. There's an opening of being and a closure of being at the same time. Actually, Karl Barth really understood this because Karl Barth took uh, Heidegger's idea and said that when God unveils God's self, God occludes God's self. And so what happens with these intellectual trends is, yeah, there's an opening like 
in post-postmodernism, there's an opening things that were neglected. But then in some instances, there's a forgetting of the insights of the linguistic term. Anyway, what I'm trying to say is that if you get committed to the intellectual progress, the trends of the academy, you can get caught up into thinking that, oh, we're gradually making intellectual progress and better ideas will solve our problems. And I'm trying to say that great ideas are great, but on the personal level, uh, perhaps the best solution is not better ideas. Yeah, I mean, I guess the question that would come out of that for me is, you know, okay then, so not that you're necessarily wanting to be prescriptive, I mean, maybe you are, you can tell me, but to the extent that you want to provide something of a, in part an analysis, but also an intervention of sorts, how would you begin to explain or characterize what that kind of thing entails? Yeah, I think it's an intervention. I, I, I don't think I'm, I don't want to say that I'm the only one trying to make it and I'm using Zen. So it's not like I'm coming up with my own spirituality. Um, yeah, you're, you're right. Other people have been, have done work in this area too, but the particular way that you're wedding a certain kind of Christianity with Zen Buddhism, I think is really interesting, especially when you include the uh, the Lacanian angle. I'm not familiar with anyone doing that. And I have to say, just as a sort of general comment, having seen like earlier versions of this, congratulations, man. This is a really fantastic text, really cogent and concise for, I think, a topic that can be enigmatic. Oh, thanks a lot. I appreciate you saying that. The thing is, like, I really left Christianity out. I mean, you didn't though, because you, you, I mean, you start with with a conversation about Pauline musings about the law and Zen Buddhism. Oh yeah, that too. I put Christianity in the intro and conclusion, but I left it out of the middle chapters explicitly. I've been deeply influenced by Christianity, so I couldn't leave it out mm-hmm. in what I'm doing. Frankly, I'm trying to describe a Zen Buddhist form of regeneration. I think progressivism has dismissed the notion of Christian regeneration because it has a history of being used so oppressively and dualistically and requires often belief in things that a lot of well-educated people have a hard time believing. So I'm trying to put forward a kind of regeneration that doesn't require belief. (laughs) And also where you end up in a place where what you realize is an interconnection to everything and not a separate subjectivity that's rewarded in a certain post-mortem condition only for the few. In part, I'm trying to distill what is salvageable from Christian salvation. Picking up on the and continuing that kind of discussion about a weddedness to Christianity, even as we're pushing past Christianity, we're reconfiguring Christianity. You're someone who's still active in the church. I mean, hell, you're married to a pastor. I'm sure you must find yourself in conversations with Christians who adhere to a more like orthodox or even literal understanding of the tradition. Uh, I do too. Uh, And like, personally, I find it pretty fucking exhausting uh, trying to continuously rehabilitate a faith that is as far as I can tell, you know, been almost entirely colonized and has been for a long time. But then it comes to talking about like specific topics. Um, you know, the resurrection is something that you mentioned. Whenever something like that comes up, I'm like, oh God, here we go. And what I'll do is like as, as a strategy is I'll try to leave the door open to like some minimal degree of credulity that gives people like a backdoor in case they just want to get out. <laughs> what do you mean by that? 
So my starting point for thinking about the resurrection, well, there's multiple ones, but the main one is the idea that somebody comes back from the dead is just completely at odds with my own experience and with the testimony of everyone that I've ever encountered. So if somebody wants to base their entire faith around something that no one has any experience with and is just like, basically, then okay, fine. If for some reason, the literal interpretation of that event is somehow formative and foundational for you, I am not going to shit on it. But but that's a house of cards. <laughs> but it, it's a total fucking house of cards. Really, belief in the resurrection is constitutive of the false self that needs to go away. It props up, I am a justified member of this superior group. Death is not going to touch me. I'm going to live forever. That's all the, e- the ego. The ego is believing all that. The ego is saying all that. See, Christianity has this notion of dying to the false self, but it also has all kinds of stuff that appeals to the false self at the same time. As a system, it would have to do both if you're, because, right, you have to have a self to die. Yeah, there has to be something appealing, right? In Buddhism, you're overcoming suffering and separation, et cetera. There's something appealing. But the problem with uh, orthodoxy is it appeals to the ego too much. I mean, there it critiques the ego, but appeals to the ego at the same time. Yeah. I mean, I take your point, Leif. In order to put that dialectic into motion, right, you have to have some starting point of a self, right? I think this is where Christianity pushes this to the ultimate degree and says, okay, we're going to start with the self, but we're going to start with the self, the ultimate self, God. And then we're going to kill that just to kind of drive the point home. (laughs) You know? And that's where I think it's like consonant with a kind of death of God theology, because in as much as the image of God is a sort of reified reflection of the ego. The crucifixion is a kind of dissolution of the self. And I kind of oscillate here between an abyss of meaning and a plenitude of meaning. But I ultimately think that there is a, there are two ways of kind of talking about the same thing. It's a complete disruption of the symbolic edifice. It is if you take it the way radical theology takes it, or even Bonhoeffer. But throughout yeah. history, it's been so co-opted by this grand narrative of penal substitution. I really like the stuff on Lacan and the mirror. You have it broken out into five different sections having to do with the mirror. What's the main thesis there? All right. So we're formed through the mirror stage early on six to 18 months. Uh, And we take this image, which has a kind of grandeur and a totality, and we take it for ourselves. But there's also a sense where there's this infant with all these dissonant drives who can't live up to this totality of the image. And we spend the rest of our lives trying to live up to this image, and we never can. Because the image is originally external. We can't be there where the image is. And so we've come to be in a society of images in which we're always internalizing and assimilating ourselves to images, but we're never able to live up to the image. We have this notion of self-image. If you think about all of the popular psychology that we've heard our whole lives, you have to have a good self-image. But what is a self-image? It's just an idea of yourself. It's not yourself. (laughs) It's false. So to have a good enough self-image or a bad self-image, they're equally alienated, is to not know who you are. And so this dynamic has in part been facilitated by an individualizing culture of the image. 
So I go back to theology in the Reformation. Martin Luther, in his commentary on Galatians, described salvation in imaginary terms. You need to look on Jesus Christ. You need to not look at yourself. You have this God who's gazing at you. And if you look at Jesus Christ, then God turns God's gaze to Jesus Christ. And that righteousness of Jesus Christ becomes your righteousness. So it's all a play of gazes. And then if you look at the development of perspective in painting, you have, first of all, a mirror shows three dimensions in two dimensions and was the fundamental way that painters used to make perspective in painting by looking at a mirror. Otherwise known as representation, yes? Yeah. Yeah. You have the development of perspective in painting. You also have an increased incidence in portraits, which I didn't even touch. But with the perspective, it's like you have this burgeoning of, of separate individuals, right, with different vantage points. And that was something new. And if you think about it, in the medieval age, there was one massive symbolic order dominated by king, church, and our aristocracy. It was very fixed. And you had different roles in society. And you were that role. And there was little sense of a personhood beyond that. The symbolic order ruled. So here you have the emergence of the modern ego and the sense that there are different perspectives, different personhoods, different vantage points and different ways for seeking advantage. And this is represented in painting. Then we have Descartes himself breaking free of tradition. And he conceived of the mind as a mirror. And you have good representations in a mirror and bad representations in a mirror. And the point was to get to these clearly seen good representations. Initially, of course, by doubting everything. And this notion of the mind as a mirror is, according to Richard Wordy, what led to modern conceptions of truth as accurate representation. Also, if you know, Descartes divided everything into the res cogitans and the res extensa, the thinking thing and the extended things, but he used the perception of extended materiality to define the res cogitans as a mirror. So uh, I'm going to fast forward a little bit as industrialization and technology progressed. Uh, visibility became increasingly important. Also, Foucault, we need to mention Foucault in there with discipline. In Discipline and Punish and in the History of Sexuality, Volume 1, visibility is of prime importance. This cultural visibility. I mean, it was once widely believed that God was the panoptic power, always watching you. And this was enough to check people. Well, I think we could probably trace the death of God to the, the period between, say, the critique of pure reason and the American Revolution at one end and the end of Napoleon's reign at the other end. And this was a major transition. And this widespread belief that God was a consistently peering observer with punitive power was going away. And so you have in Foucault's Discipline and Punish institutions of visibility that monitor subjects, but also through this monitoring, get subjects to monitor themselves. So it's like this eye that's always watching, but even when this eye isn't watching, the subject becomes the watcher of him or herself, kind of like Freud's superego, right? The, the power that watches gets internalized and I become a watcher of myself. And you have an increasing individualization, increasing visibility, increasing egoism, but we need not think of egoism as simple antisocial self-assertion. Uh, we're talking about egoism that very, is very much coextensive with the way society operates. 
this is one thing Lacan kind of misses. Lacan tends to think of egoism as a divergence from symbolic consistency, from the symbolic order. However, in capitalism, going back to Adam Smith, right, it's this selfishness in the individual that for Smith, the individual hand of God regulates to produce this capitalistic order. So in capitalism, egoism and symbolic conformity merge. And so Foucault's individual egos are not rebellious egos or self-assertive egos. They're docile subjects. And there's this pervasive culture of visibility, of being watched and watching yourself. Move forward, we have the spectacle. More technology, more industrialization. Also, uh, what you have are modern democracies providing entertainment-based reprieve for hardworking subjects so that they'll show up and work hard again. So it's like a Dionysian escape in a disproportionately Apollonian world so that workers keep working, right? <laughs> and they keep being satisfied. Keep making those bricks, bitch. And so you have what? You have movies, television, eventually the internet, social media, um, increasing visibility, increasing spectatorship, increasing individualization. I think I've gone on too long about this, but I'll stop right there. No, it's good. I mean, I, I really love that story that you're telling, you know, using the mirror as a, as a sort of central term. Where it leaves me is thinking about the, you talk about like the downward causation of the symbolic as a formative force. I have mixed thoughts about that because I think that's right on one hand. And I think that kind of framing is really helpful when thinking about how social media functions today. And But I also think the idea of that force as a constraint is something that you touch on too, which I find really interesting because we're exploring Clayton Crockett's book on new materialism and, and cosmotheology. Uh, it's kind of a different context, but he's talking about a reconfigured transcendental, like in a Kantian style, as the totality of constraints, in that it's these constraints that provide the entire environment and pressures under which novelty can emerge. There's that constraint, there's that downward pressure, but then also there's the possibility of unexpected novelty as a result of those constraints. So I kind of see this as sort of a, uh, a mixed bag, if you will. I mean, do you see any yeah. sort of positive content to that? Well, didn't you read where I said fallenness is forwardness? You did, and that's very poetic, but maybe you want to elaborate on that. Yeah, no. Um, well, I'm thinking of Foucault. For Foucault, really didn't like psychoanalysis. He didn't like the idea of repression. Yeah. But if you look at what repression is doing in Lacan, there's a whole ensemble of production associated with repression. Without repression, you cannot be a part of the symbolic order and all of the productivity and novelty that goes along with that. So I didn't real I, I didn't mean to portray the downward causation as primarily a constraint. Hmm. It's quite productive. But the question is how much of the novelty and production is ultimately helpful is another question. Yeah, sure. And so for Foucault, power does not simply repress. Power produces all kinds of things and many things that we would consider good. If you look at what Foucault targeted, he targeted the prison, which progressives of his time thought was a great improvement on earlier, more bar barbaric forms of punishment. He targeted schools. 
he targeted his own intellectual culture. He targeted things where there seemed to be great advancement and rationality. Yeah, Leif just wrote that my fiance's dad once wrote in elementary school that school is a prison. Well, Foucault puts school and prison side by side in his analysis. I always think about this when I have to drop off Cameron and pick him up. There's a bell that goes off. feels very Pavlovian to me. And if I don't pick him up on time, there are consequences for, for me. <laughs> so it's, it's a very effective system. Gets everyone moving on this, at the same time. Yeah. I mean, you've mentioned Foucault in a number of different ways, but I, I really appreciated some of the more spiritual valences that you associate with, with Foucault. And I think a lot of times when we talk about spirituality, at least for me, there can be a, a degree of ambiguity around that term. It's used kind of loosely, but Foucault had a very specific or had some more specific ideas of what spirituality implied. In some ways, I consider this to be as much as it's you know, an academic text and, you know, something of comparative religion and some stuff like this. It's also a deeply spiritual text. Can you talk about the spirituality that's a part of this? Well, I use Foucault there. He talks about spirituality in a way of altering yourself and changing your fundamental way of perceiving things. He talks about truth being not something that can simply be learned intellectually but something that you have to alter yourself to receive. And that's precisely what's going on in Zen. It's about an alteration of the self. And it's frankly, my opening to this is deeply indebted to my experience with evangelicalism and all this talk about becoming a different kind of self. However, in evangelicalism, I found that there is a superficial cognitively propositional way of dealing with it that just was insufficiently incarnational and didn't get to the depths of the person. And so I found a commitment to belief to be certain beliefs to be part of the problem. And of course, there's all kinds of social pressure to have those beliefs. And so I found evangelicalism to have something right, that the human subject needs to become a different kind of subject. But yet the way they went about it in terms of maintaining this mythology and this groupthink was deeply problematic. And I found in Zen, you know, something very different where student goes to the Zen teacher for an answer. And the Zen teacher will say, there's dew on the grass right now. In the morning, when the Zen student tries to climb to the summit with metaphysics, the Zen teacher will redirect them. But if the Zen student asks an ordinary question, the Zen teacher will also say something provocatively metaphysical, like, who are you? I mean, that is the deepest Zen question. Who are you? Ultimately, we are all the I am that I am, but we've accepted labels and definitions and an identification with things that happen to us. And these all get in the way of our being who we really are. Now in Christian theology, there's this notion that God is wholly other and that you can only become who you're meant to be through the intervention of this holy other. In Hinduism and Buddhism, the Buddha mind is everywhere. We're all in the Buddha mind. 
and you just have to wake up to it. You're not becoming a certain kind of person because if you come at, if it's you becoming a different kind of person through divine intervention, then there's going to be a class of people who have undergone that process and a class of people who have not. And there's going to be an infinite bifurcation. But if all our minds are the Buddha minds and we just haven't woken up to them yet, then there can be no bifurcation of people or any bifurcation of humanity from the rest of the cosmos. The Buddha mind is ubiquitous. And it's a matter of waking up and being who you are, not being someone special who's a result of divine choice. Because guess what? If it's divine choice and not this doesn't happen to everyone, then the divine is choosing certain people and not others. And that's a big problem. Calvin gets the logic perfectly. If it's divine choice, if it's divine will, then it's completely divine will. And God is choosing certain persons and not others. But rather, if we're all already in the Buddha mind, but we haven't existentially realized it yet, if it's a matter of we're essentially Buddhas, but not yet existentially Buddhas, then there can be no definitive separation of the awakened from the unawakened. And what does, uh, what does Augustine say about this? Well, there's a hole in ourselves that can only be filled by God. What Buddhists would say, if it's God, there's still a duality between you and God. And what Meister Eckhart would say, there's, there's that which precedes God, the Godhead. And I've identified this with emptiness. Dr. Lacan once bragged at the end of his life that he spent his whole life reading Augustine. He bragged about that? Yeah. Okay. Interesting thing to be proud of late in age. <laughs> well, I don't know. Maybe you wouldn't consider it bragging, but he said it proudly. Yeah. No No shade. I mean. I mean, he's, he's an interesting person to uh, psychoanalyze. I mean, the idea that there's a God-shaped hole. I mean, this is what capitalism picks up on. They're just like, well, we can have all kinds of holes for you. And God can just be another one. So God becomes essentially, um, upon that understanding, God is, I, I don't know my Lacanian very well, but becomes a what, sort of like object petit ah, or something like this, right? Yes. Essentially, it's it's idolatry. Not only can you put God there, but you can put any number of your understandings of God there, which is unavoidable in a certain, in a, in a certain sense, if you're going to talk about God in, a, in any kind of minimally cataphatic way, I suppose. On that point, what would you want to say about God? Because I honestly did not get to the very last section on where you were talking more openly using God language. Who or what is God in this sort of Zen-inflected, process theology-inflected, post-Christian framing that you are working with? Well, if emptiness is analogous to space, God would be analogous to time. And so I'm saying that Zen provides the freedom to be, but the freedom to become requires more cultural commitment and investment in the symbolic order. There are dimensions of both God and emptiness that draw us towards themselves. And both have in common that they draw us out of ourselves into different kinds of subjectivities. But the subjectivity of faith does not look like the subjectivity of Zen. And I'm arguing that kind of like Ecclesiastes 3, there's a time and a place for either one. There's a time for Zen detachment, but there's also a time for commitment to a justice to come. And I think uh, Christianity provides, and the heritage of Christianity, 
which is massive, provides more robust resources for that kind of engage, cultural engagement, but not a complete identification with culture. There can be more engaged cultural engagement from the Christian perspective. There's still an element of detachment. And even though Zen is known for detachment, uh, Masao Abe has this notion of dynamic shunyata. So even when I realize emptiness, emptiness empties itself of emptiness, and then I return, I find this notion, it's right for the sort of combination I'm going for, but it's not sufficiently developed by him. I also think that Zen has not sufficiently realized the great extent to what they're dealing with in the person is the result of cultural conditioning. And so it's actually a way to address structural injustice insofar as it is situated in the person. And if they could recognize that, it would perhaps develop a more um, impersonal and structural commitment to rectify injustices. So do you plan on uh, doing more writing in the future? Yeah. Well, in my second book, I already started working on it. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to show how um, the Pauline patristic paradigm of soteriology is described very much in terms of the process by which we become subjects in the first place. You know, human culture was developed by men and for men. And so the Oedipal process is a movement from nature to culture, from an incestuous connection with the mother to being a subject who can negotiate the symbolic order. You only do this through an identification with the father, who is the bearer of culture. Historically, familial and cultural power has been reproduced in this process, particularly sons becoming subjects. So there are the two subject positions, two subject positions that are ripe for apotheosis and hypostasis. And that's the father and the son. Because the transmission of power from the father to the son has been the ways that culture and families have reproduced themselves. So they're like these given subject positions, the father and the son. And the boy has to move into the position of the son. You can only do this by internalizing what Lacan calls the name of the father, which he describes as a signifier, but it's more than that. It's a power that enables the boy to occupy the position of the son and eventually be a father. So I'm saying that this is the way that the father, son, and the Holy Spirit have been described. There's a subject position of the father, the subject position of the son, and also that power which is internalized, whereby the boy becomes moves into the position of the son. And that would be the Holy Spirit. And it's only by undergoing this process that you become a son of the father. And on the other side of this is incest and animality and disorder. So you go from being one kind of subject to a radically different kind of subject. You become a subject. I'm arguing that this describing soteriology and a trinity in this way is not wholly wrong. Okay. Because it teaches that the subjects who've been formed by this process, who have resolved the edible process, 
are problematic. So it affirms it and rejects it at the same time. So I'm saying, yes, these subjects need to become radically different kinds of subjects. But if you reproduce the language and the structural positions whereby we become subjects in the first place, that's really problematic. I'm going to argue for a maintenance of the imperative to become a different kind of subject, but without utilizing the language of the very mechanisms by which we become subjects in the first place and which are said to be heavily laden with sin. That sounds pretty cool. How far along are you into that? I'm just doing research right now. Nice. Uh, you're going to have this uh, your dissertation published in book form or any plans yeah, for that? Yeah, I'm working on that right now. Oh, cool. I'm going to try to send to SUNY. Oh, yeah. Cool. I'll probably send it multiple places, though, but I'm working with their their instructions right now. All right. This was fun. Um, let's do it again. Yeah. Sounds good. All right. Later, guys. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. Yeah, man. Love you. Love you, too. Thanks again to Luke. Thanks to Leif as well. Thank you for listening. Again, you're welcome to support the show through our Patreon, which will be linked in the show notes. And we'll see you next time.